Well, hello, my name is Captain Bartholomew Smith, and I've got a few stories from my time out on the sea. You know, I bought a boat, and I named her Unsinkable. My friend said, don't do that. <coughs> a week later, it didn't sink. It blew up. Bad fuse. And I'm going to be honest, the story, Moby Dick, is loosely based off of my life. Long story short, every one of those baby seagulls now think I'm their mother. <laughs> and I told her, I said, you know what the best shark bait is? Jolly Ranchers. <laughs> Welcome. My name is Dustin Johnston, and I'm the director of Life Leadership College here at Life Church. And uh, it is my distinct honor to be able to open up this series today. It is called Boats, you just saw. And uh, like Pastor Ryan said, that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're about to do. So just please prepare yourself differently than what, what that is. We're not going out to the high seas today. Uh, instead, we are going to our Bible. Uh, the, the series based on on a true story it is all about stories right we love a good story whether it's a legend or a book or a movie a good story is compelling uh, that's why we gravitate to movies like Star Wars or Pirates of the Caribbean it's why we enjoy good books like The Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe and The Great Gatsby but the most compelling stories of all are the ones that are based on true stories. So over the coming weeks, we're going to take a look at very real, factual, true stories that happen throughout history and that are recorded in one of the oldest books that there is. And we're going to do so in order to learn more about the character and the nature of our God and to find out how these stories relate to and impact us here today. So let me just give a preface as we begin this series. Some of the stories that you are going to hear over the coming weeks are going to sound somewhat fantastical. Some of them are going to sound uh, maybe mythological or mysterious or miraculous. Do not let that scare you off. Don't, don't let that put you off. After all, we are reading God's story. God's story is going to sound somewhat different than your day-to-day -day story. You understand that, right? I mean, your day-to-day -day is like this, and then God's day-to-day -day is very different than our day-to-day. -day. So God's story is going to have some elements in it that are going to be somewhat hard to believe. And I'm not asking you to blindly believe that, but I just want you, as we go into this book, to, to be able to accept and receive. I've said before, if you can get past the first sentence in the book, then, then the rest is not that difficult to believe. And so if you believe that this Bible has some truth in it and some true stories, then I just want you to open up your heart to be able to receive some of that. And I think that if you look closely enough, you will be able to find yourself in the pages of this ancient book. So if you will open the book with me now to Daniel chapter 3. That is where our first story is going to come from. Daniel chapter 3. If you don't have your book in your hand, you can grab your phone and hopefully you've got this, the book on there. And uh, worst case scenario, you can just look on the screens and follow along. But I would encourage you, over the coming weeks, we're going to be reading and hearing stories from one book. It's this one. And so if you would like to bring your textbook with you, then we could all read the story together. So Daniel chapter 3. I'll give you just a moment to turn there. Before I, before I came on here at Life Church's Life 
life leadership college director. What do I do here? Uh, I, I was a youth pastor in Louisiana. So before coming to the great state of Wisconsin, my wife and I were in Louisiana. I was a youth pastor there. And it was, our, it was the first year of being a youth pastor. It was maybe first or second when I did what any good youth pastor is supposed to do every single summer. And that is take his or her students to youth camp. And some of you might have grown up going to youth camp or some of you are eagerly waiting to send your kids off to youth camp this summer. Uh, either way, I'll just kind of be upfront and honest with you. Youth camp was never a thing that I enjoyed. It was a, a necessary evil. Evil is way too strong of a word. Youth camp was good in so many ways, right? So the, the services and the worship times and the uh, community and being able to connect with friends and uh, find cute girls. So youth camp had its ups, but it also had its downs. I was never keen on rolling around in mud for 10,000 points, right? That just didn't do anything for me. I, I, I've been at camps before where the, the guys, the, the counselors can get their, like the junior high students, they're like, everybody just run into this wall for 5,000 points, and the sixth graders, you know, just face first into that wall. And, and for me, I was just sixth grader that was over there that was like, I want to go home. You know, this, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't for me, and uh, that never changed. And so when I was a youth pastor taking my own students, I had to find ways to entertain myself, find ways to keep me engaged in what we were doing that week at camp so I didn't just leave my students there and go home. I had to do, do things that entertained me. And so uh, when our, my, my, my guys in my dorm came up to me that very first night and asked if we could have a pillow fight, my interest was instantly piqued. Sounds fun, but then the, the better side of me came out, the, the Christian leader side of me came out, and I said, you know what, that would be dangerous, it, there'd be no way to control it, it would be unmonitored, and someone would most definitely get hurt, so we're going to, we're going to pass on that one. So I was very proud of myself, pat on the back, but in typical bargaining fashion, these students came up to me just a few minutes later, and they said, we have a, a different proposition for you. What if instead of a pillow fight, because we know you don't want to do that, what if we did a pillow gauntlet of death? <laughs> so, excuse me. So first of all, uh, that sounds a lot more dangerous than your first suggestion. And secondly, tell me more. And so they, they began to unpack what a pillow gauntlet of death would look like. And they described that it would be two lines of guys uh, on either side. They would all be equipped with pillows. And then one at a time, these students would run through the gauntlet, being pelted with pillows on all sides. And then they'd make it out on the other end. I mean, it is controlled. It is monitored. There's no rogue pillow fight going off in a corner. We're going to be able to see everything. And surely no one's going to get hurt. So I, I came back and I just said, hey, meet me in the middle. We will do this the final night of camp if and only if you allow me to sleep peacefully each and every night leading up to the final night. They agreed. Miraculously, the final night of camp had come and I had slept like a baby the entire time I was at camp. 
And so being a man of my word, I said, it's time for the pillow gauntlet of death. And so they lined up. They each had their pillow. And one at a time, students would run through. And everything was going good the first 10, 15 minutes. I mean, students would come out on the other side winded or having the air knocked out of them. A few of them with bloody noses. Some of them with bruises. They couldn't quite explain to parents when they got home. But everybody was alive. No one was crying for an extended period of time. Everybody was good, healthy, and whole. And so we were about to wrap it up and everybody applaud, go to sleep. Everybody was good. It was the last night of camp. And then one student, I guess he was uh, stirring up his confidence and his courage throughout the entirety of the gauntlet. And as we were wrapping up, he knew we were about to close it down. So he said, I want to go. And uh, sixth, sixth grade, first time at camp, frail, just made of bones and a little bit of skin, kid, uh, wanted to go through the gauntlet, and who am I to stop a man from his right to, to make it through the gauntlet? So we lined up, and this young boy just runs through the gauntlet, and he's doing great. Like, he's dodging most of the pillows, taking a few hits here and there, makes it to the very end of the gauntlet, where my largest uh, guy in my youth group is standing with his pillow and thinking that it is a brilliant idea to take his pillow and swipe down low, and in doing so, knocks the kid's feet out from under him, sends him into a spiral in the air to come crashing down onto the concrete floor. Thankfully, thankfully, he caught himself. Unthankfully, it was with his right arm in the wrong position. Yeah. So long story short, we uh, we spent the rest of our evening in the ER, and the camp uh, counselor, the camp director was uh, not talking to me, and the parents were not that happy with me. I think that we could all agree that the decision that I made there when the students came to me uh, was probably the wrong one. I probably should have said no to the pillow gauntlet of death, you know? I I said no to the pillow fight, but pillow gauntlet of death, let's see what it looks like. Hindsight's 20-20. I'm no longer youth pastor there, unsure if it's related. But daily, we are faced with decisions that we have to make. Some are micro, some are macro, some are important, some are not so much. But when we are faced with these decisions, we have an opportunity and we often have a choice to make. One in which we know it is the right decision. We know it is the healthy decision. We know it is the smart decision. We know that it is the God-honoring decision. But instead, we so often entertain or even choose the wrong decision, the unhealthy decision, the donut decision, the chocolate decision, the the one that is uh, instantly pleasing, but the one that comes with consequences, like spending the night in the emergency room. In our story that we're going to read today, three young men are faced with a deadly decision, one that could easily cost them their lives. They're presented with an easy choice that's the wrong decision, and they're left with a very difficult choice that would most certainly be the right decision. Let's read Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. It was 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. 
So this is a large statue. Before we read on, I just want you to get into your head this imagery. This statue is massive. I know very few of you still measure in cubits, so let me help you out here. Uh, if, if, if you'll just look up at the ceiling uh, above you, look past the lights, try to see the ceiling right now. Come on, go ahead and look up. I'm not going to karate chop you in the throat while you're looking. Just look at the ceiling. That is about 35 feet right there. Now, the statue is about 90 feet high. So it is about two and a half times the size of this room, and then it's nine feet wide. This is a massive statue that King Nebuchadnezzar is setting up. Verse 3, he gathers together the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials, and assembles them for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And there they stood before it. And then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and people of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, whoever does not fall down and worship the image of gold that the king has set up, whoever does not will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that the king had set up. Many of you have heard this story before, yeah? Maybe in, uh, in Sunday school when you were growing up, in church at some point. I want to clue you in a, on a few things you might have missed on the first telling or the first hearing. This wasn't an everyday occurrence. It wasn't just a regular thing where the king set up this huge gold statue for everyone to bow down and worship for. This was a one-time event. It was a special occurrence. Maybe for us today it could be comparable to a ribbon-cutting ceremony, uh, except it, it was a lot more blasphemous. A, a ribbon-cutting ceremony can be to celebrate the opening of a new business that was coming into, into our community, a new coffee shop to serve the community, a new bank to be able to help out with financial needs. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, set up an idol that would direct all worship and attention to him and him alone. Whether the statue was uh, an image of him or an image of one of his gods, either way, it was not a good thing. And if you've heard this story, you might know what happens next. As the music begins to play and everyone begins to bow before this statue, there were three young men that came face to face with a decision to make. They could do what everyone else was doing and they could bow down for just a few moments and then go about their day as if nothing had ever happened. Or they could refuse to bow and they could reserve their worship for God and God alone. Do you remember the names of these three Hebrew boys? If you've heard the story before, they might be familiar to you. Let's all say them together, yeah? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. What? What names were... Uh, Hananiah, I know where the uh, confusion might, might be. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, those were their Jewish names that were given to them at birth. Their mother, their father, their friends would have called them by these names. The names that you called them are the names that they were given when they came into slavery in Babylon. And they're the names that unfortunately stuck with them. And I won't tease you or trick you this time. We can say them together. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah. 
And these were the names that they were called, and these were the three young men that, when faced with a difficult decision, did the right thing, and they refused to bow. Verse 13, we'll see their, con- their consequence. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and so these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that you do not serve my gods, and you do not worship the image of gold that I have set up? Basically, the king here is saying, you have come into my kingdom as slaves. I have given you a place in my kingdom. Don't mess it up now. I make the rules. You follow them. I'm going to give you one more chance to do this. We'll play the music again, and as everybody bows down, you make sure that you do as well and show everyone watching who it is that has given you a place to live, who it is that gives you food, who it is that you serve. See, up until this point, the king is getting in their faces, and he's kind of just issuing an attack from one man to three other men. But the thing that Nebuchadnezzar says next turns the tide of the battle against him. Verse 15. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, If you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hands? Uh Uh-oh. You see, Nebuchadnezzar's battle at first was between himself and three teenage boys, one that he could easily come out victorious in. But in that final phrase, in that question, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand, in those words, the king converts his confrontation with men into a contest with the king of the universe. A much more deadly affair. Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to him, King, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. And Life Church, I want you to focus on what they say next. Verse 17, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve, he is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, We want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. These three young men are literally standing in front of the oven with the heat blasting up in their faces, promising to consume them and end their life in the most miserable of ways. Yet they resolutely proclaim, We firmly and fully believe that our God can save us from this terrible situation. He has done it before, and he can surely do it again. But even if not, we will resist you in the worship that you command of us, and we will cling to the promises of God. With three powerful words, they stand and defy a king, even if not. Not, even if not. Will you say those three words with me? Even if not. Do you get this, Life Church? This is not some kind of doubt 
This is not a statement of distrust. This is not a statement that is demonstrating a lack of faith. No, this is an attitude of defiant faith that is staring straight down the barrel of your current crisis. Whatever you're going through right now, a fracturing relationship, a hopeless summer, uh, or a devastating diagnosis, it's looking at that dead in the, in the eyes and it's saying, I believe that God can deliver me, but even if not, I will trust him anyways. I will not bend, I will not break, and I will not bow because my faith is not dependent on my circumstances, but on the character of God himself, even if not. And I I know that some of you were probably raised to believe that this is questioning God that you are supposed to name it and claim it, that you command the promises in the hand of God to move. Any other way would be a lack of faith. And then I know that some of you are probably on the other end of the spectrum here where you, 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 don't even, you, you weren't even taught that the miraculous takes place, that maybe in your mind that God started the cosmos and then he walked away from it and he is an inactive God. And that to demand something of him, to pray something, to to call on his name to interact in your life would be a feeble request. And I'm pleading with you to, to find yourself somewhere in the middle, that you can firmly believe that God can and will do something in your life and in your circumstance and in your situation, but even if not, you will not bow. That is the cry of these three young men that faced a fire and defied a king in order to trust and serve their God. They said, God can and he will save us from this fire, but even if we burn up and die, we still will not bow. And so, the king had a radical change of heart and he bowed down before these three boys and he pled for their forgiveness. He melted down the gold statue and he gave all the gold to the poor people in the kingdom and he got up in front of everybody and he apologized. I'm sorry, I'm the king and I was wrong and these three young boys are right. That's not what happened. That is what we would like to happen. That's what we would like God to do in our lives. We want him to show up and fix the problem in the way that we see fits. We would like for our enemies to crumble and us to be lifted up on a pedestal as being right all along. But that is rarely how God shows up and and, and solves the issue. That is not what God did here. Verse 19, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed, meaning he was relenting at first. He was giving them a way out at first, but now his anger is incensed. And he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to throw them into the blazing furnace. This furnace, by the way, is not just something that you cook a nice little meal in. This is a huge industrial-sized furnace that was used for melting down iron and other metals during this time. And so when the king says, heat this thing up seven times hotter, it's not a literal seven times hotter. It's figurative saying, get this as hot as it could possibly go. And it was hot, church, because the Bible says that even the soldiers that threw the young boys in were consumed by the heat of the flames, and they died. 
And if that wasn't enough of a shock, what happened next astounded everyone that was watching. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar, he leaped to his feet in amazement, and he asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. And the king said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. If the story wasn't good enough already, it quickly becomes one of my favorite in all of scripture, solely because of what the king says right here. He could have said anything to describe what he was seeing in the fire, but the phrase that he uses is son of the gods. Let me help you out here. Son of the gods. Son of the gods. Son of God. Jesus Christ, son of God. Before he, he came as a, a little baby in a manger, he quite possibly could have joined the three Hebrew boys in the midst of a burning fire to deliver them from excruciating pain and inevitable death. And I apologize if that does something with your theology. I apologize if for you, you thought that, that the first time Jesus shows up on the scene, he was wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. No, Jesus is all over the Old Testament, from creation to the voice in the burning bush, from the man who wrestled with Jacob to the suffering servant described in the book of Isaiah. The pre-incarnate Christ is a very real and very beautiful reality and one that is very present right here in the midst of the flames. And so... The king, he orders the boys out of the fire, and, and the soldiers, they, they pull them out, and they're, they're inspecting these guys, and there's not a scratch nor a singe on their entire body. The Bible says that they begin to check, and their hair was not burned. Their clothes were undamaged, and they didn't even smell of smoke. This is how completely they were rescued from the flames. And all that the king can muster up to say is, we know of no God that saves his people this way, by walking into the fire with them. Guys, this is what's so different about Christianity from all other world religions. We have a God who has chosen to walk into the fire with us. We have a God who has chosen to suffer himself for his people. That is the story of Jesus. That is the story of the cross, where God sent his son to die a brutal death on the cross in my place and in your place so that we might have salvation. Even Jesus, the final moments before his death, he's praying in a garden. He says, God, my father, take this from me. He's basically saying, if there's any other way, let's do that way instead. But God, in his infinite love and in his boundless wisdom, he said, no, son, this is what must happen. So Jesus went to the cross and he hung there. And he breathed out his last breath so that you and I might be saved. 
I mean, I told you from the beginning, right, that you, it, these stories are, are, are going to sound uh, miraculous at times. They're going to sound fantastical, and that is true. But right here, it sounds very real and very raw that Jesus himself had one of those moments where he said, Father, take this from me. But even if not, even if not, Last Sunday, a week ago, we, we celebrated Father's Day with many people all around, all around this world. You too, we celebrated Father's Day. And Father's Day for the last few years has been bittersweet for Kara and I, my wife and I, because it was just a couple of years ago now where we lost Kara's dad to cancer. And I, I remember during that time leading up as he was going through therapy and medication that it was very difficult, obviously, and many of you could imagine, some of you could even relate. As we were going through the treatment, we had numerous churches and hundreds and hundreds of people that were praying with us and believing that God could heal her dad. We, we've seen God do healings before. We've read of God doing healings before, and so we knew that that task was not too great for our God. And so we prayed, earnestly prayed, sincerely prayed that God, that Kara's dad would be healed completely of cancer. And it was in those moments, I distinctly remember the phrase, even if not, being a very real reality in our family. Not just some words that are spoken, but a very real reality. In fact, it translated itself into some kind of prayer that we prayed just kind of want to share with you, like, I don't remember the exact words, but a prayer that we prayed very often was, God, heal him completely. God, take this sickness and this pain from him. You see his struggle. I pray that you would heal him completely. We believe with great faith that you can and that you will do this. One, because you love this man and he loves you. And two, because we know that you are mighty and that you are strong and that you are powerful and that your love can be on display here if you would just do this miracle. But even if not, we know that you are with us. We know that you hear our prayers. We know that you feel our pain. We know that you are close to the brokenhearted, and we know that you have never left us, and you will never forsake us. You are in the midst of the fire with us. And even if it's not our own plan, even if it's not our own desires, God, we, we just believe and we have to hold on with faith that you have a plan that is higher than ours. And so we trust you. Regardless of the outcome, we trust you. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was talking to my wife, and we were just kind of thinking back to this trying and difficult season. She reminded me of a moment that, that uh, her mom told us. As we, it was our first, first day in hospice, and you know when, I mean, the situation's bleak, but when you get to hospice, it's a different thing altogether. And her, her mom was really just at the end of herself, and 
it was just a time, a moment between her and her husband where she said, Chuck, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And he looked at his wife and he said, I mean, without even a moment's hesitation, he said, we're going to do what we've always done. We're going to trust God. I, I can't imagine being the person that has to believe that and actually say that, but it is that kind of faith that he instilled in us and the rest of his family in the most trying time really of our marriage and maybe even of our life where, where, where many people would be without hope, many people would shift the blame, many people would be distraught and maybe even abandon their faith, but not a one of us did. In fact, it was a moment and it was a time where we came together like never before and a strength and a resilience grew within each of us. Sure, we were hurt. Sure, we were wounded. Sure, we were distraught. And still, it hurts today. But it was that kind of faith, an even if not kind of faith, that was with her father and that was with each of us that made us say that no matter what the outcome is, that we will trust in you, God. Do you get this life, church? It's not just if you show up and do a miracle in the way that we see fit. But even if not, even if you do it in a different way, and even if you don't miraculously pull us out of the flames, and even if it hurts, and even if we disagree, and even if it makes us angry, even if not, God, we trust you, and we love you, and we know that you've got a plan that's greater than ours. Even if not. So I would love to tell you that God healed him of cancer. And I mean, we're, we're here today, but I already, already let you know, I mean, that wasn't the situation. That even if not, it's a, it's, a, it's a prayer that continues today. Because God didn't come and heal him in the way that we wanted him to. But where cancer got the victory here, he walked over in the next moment and had victory forevermore. So what are you going through today? What are you going through this summer that seems impossible for you to overcome? Your family seems to be falling apart at the seams, or your friendships aren't what they used to be. Maybe your children haven't spoken to you in months. Maybe you hate your job, but you can't quit because you need the income. Or maybe it's your sin that is just slowly suffocating the life out of you. Maybe for you, like it was for us, it's a sickness or a disease that's in the family in which the doctors have given little hope of healing. When you're facing these times of great trial in your life and you have difficult choices to make, there's really only two options. You can run from God, and that's not going to change your circumstance or your situation one bit. Or you can run to God, into the open arms of your loving Father. And you can believe with great audacious faith that He can and that He will change your circumstances. But even if not, He will change. Let's pray. Just bow your heads and open your hearts to God.
this moment. Allow him to do a work right now that no man or no words can do. I want to pray first for those that are currently not saved. You came into this room not believing, not placing your faith in Jesus. Through the worship and through this challenge, you have your heart has begun to shift and open, and you are ready to receive Jesus, not only as Savior, everybody wants a Savior, but as Lord of your life. Maybe for you, sir, you're ready to stop playing games. You've been doing the church thing to appease and to satisfy family members or friends, but now you're going to make it real. I want to give you a moment as I pray for you to just Offer up a prayer from your heart to receive Jesus as Lord and Savior of your life. It's no, no words you have to follow. It's not an incantation. It's just a positioning of your heart to receive Jesus. Would you do that now as I pray for you? God, move in this room. For those that are far from you to those that are just a little distant, God, I pray that you would redeem, that you would restore, that you would draw them to you, God, that not that you would come with all the answers to their questions, but God, that you would come with a peace and a joy and a satisfaction that they've been desperately searching for, and I pray that you would save them right now. Now for those of us that are Christians, I want to pray that that God would be able to instill within you this even-if-not kind of faith. You know what, and I, I, I even, we don't do this much, but I just want to, like, if you're asking for and if you're desiring this even-if-not kind of faith, I would just request one small move from you, one small action to say, hey, this is me, and, and if, if that's you, would you just raise your hand with eyes closed and heads bowed, would you just raise your hand if you want God to give you that even if not kind of faith, that boldness and that courage to be able to stand up no matter what the circumstance or situations are. Would you raise your hand with all of those that are around this room lifting up their hands today? Yeah. It's incredible. I just want to know who I'm praying for and want to give you that first step to say, yeah, that's me. I, I want that. You can put your hands down. I want to pray for you. God, you saw those hands that were lifted, those people that love you, those people that know you, but those people that doubt and question and are sometimes consumed by their circumstances. God, I pray that you will give them more of your spirit, that you would give them more boldness and audacity to be able to stand up no matter what they're facing, to not bow and to not break and to not give in and to not be, not, not to fail and fall short of the race that they are running. God, in their own strength, may they know that it is impossible. In their own wisdom, may they know that they fall short. In their own life, may they know that they are going to be inconsistent at times. But God, I pray that you would come alongside of us and that you would give us the fortitude that we need to be able to make it through. In our own power, it is impossible. But with you, nothing is impossible. So God, give them boldness and give them courage today. Lord, I do pray that you would rescue them from whatever they are going through right now. Pull them out miraculously in a great display of your power. But even if not, 
Would you be with them? Would you give them hope? Let them know that you are near them, that you love them. And God, quite possibly, in the middle of their crisis, you are closer to them than you have ever been before. In Jesus' name, amen.